don't think managing the response to a national disaster is the hardest part of being president. No one expects the president to be an expert in emergency response. As president, you basically have to do three things. First, hire the right people to manage emergency response. That's where George W. Bush failed miserably. Second, you make sure those people have all the resources at your disposal to get the job done. And last, you need to provide comfort to the victims of disaster and to the country as a whole. And that is where our current president falls short. And I don't mean he's awkward around people or has trouble expressing his emotions or isn't empathic. I mean he genuinely does not care about other human beings, about their lives or their suffering. Donald Trump cares about exactly one thing, whether Donald Trump is getting attention and credit. And that's why his trip to Puerto Rico was such a disaster. Not, you know, as big a disaster as when the actual hurricane hit the island, but in the realm of post-catastrophe presidential visits, it was historic in how badly it went. But let's start our story before the trip, when Trump took to Twitter to get into a fight with the mayor of San Juan. The mayor of San Juan, who is very complimentary only a few days ago, has now been told by the Democrats that you must be nasty to Trump. Such poor leadership ability by the mayor of San Juan and the others in Puerto Rico who are not able to get their workers to help. Now, this isn't the first time Trump has yelled at a mayor following a disaster in the city they preside over. You might remember he got into a fight with London's mayor following a terrorist attack there. Who does that? Who attacks a public official trying to deal with disaster? Who takes a tragedy that has killed people and transformed lives and makes it into a sideshow about himself? I mean, Donald Trump, obviously. It's like his defining trait. He makes everything about Donald Trump. So, Tuesday he goes to Puerto Rico and proceeds to embarrass himself in a whole slew of ways. He continues his feud with San Juan's mayor, Carmen Yulín Cruz, praising other officials and pointedly ignoring her. And he also said a couple of things. Well, listen to this clip. Now, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack because we've spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico, and that's fine. We've saved a lot of lives. If you look at the... Uh, every death is a horror. But if you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina, and you look at the tremendous hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died. Two really awful things here, one right after the other. First, his snarky budget comment, implying that disaster relief has had a huge impact on the budget when we spent way less on Puerto Rico than we did in Texas or Florida after Harvey and Irma. And Puerto Rico was already suffering through a fiscal crisis before the storm, the implication being that we're resentful we have to spend money there, unlike those other, you know, more American places. And then Trump called Katrina a real catastrophe, like the devastation of Puerto Rico is nothing in comparison just because Katrina had a bigger body count. Who talks like that? Who acts like that? And who goes to a room crowded with hurricane survivors and tosses rolls of paper towels to people like a basketball game at the carnival? Donald Trump does. He honestly did that. And it was ugly and weird and inappropriate. It robbed people, desperate for help, of their dignity. All he had to do was visit that island and act like a decent human being for a few hours. And he couldn't manage it. 
It isn't right. And it is not normal. Hello, and welcome to the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and it wasn't just natural disasters in the news this week. We saw the worst mass shooting in American history, 59 dead, more than 500 people injured. And I just want to talk briefly about something Trump said. In this case, it's not something abnormal. It's something politicians, especially on the right, virtually always say after a tragedy like this. Trump called the shooting an act of evil. And I wrote about this, uh, and you can find a link to the story on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. But when conservative politicians call these horrors evil, they're not just rendering a judgment. They're assigning a cause, and they do this for a very specific reason. They do it to avoid blaming another reason, guns. See, if an act is evil, then there's nothing we could have done to stop it. There's just evil in the world. It just happens. So there's no point in passing gun control because that won't stop evil. Trump, of course, is going to oppose any serious gun control efforts. It's looking fairly likely there may be a new law or new regulations stopping the sale of bump stocks or other kits to convert semi-automatic weapons into automatic weapons, which is literally the least we can do. But real regulations, real laws with teeth, we're not likely to see anything. Not with someone like Trump in the White House, not with Republicans leading Congress. And after what happened in Las Vegas, in action, that, my friends, is pretty evil. Now, I'm not saying I'm the most powerful person in Washington, D.C., but I will point out that just hours after I released last week's episode, in which I called Tom Price a scumbag, he was forced to resign as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Am I personally responsible? I don't see how you can prove that I'm not. So, who's next out of the administration? Well, Price isn't the only one with plane problems. We already talked about EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt last week, but he's been hiding out in his soundproof bunker ever since, so I think he's safe for now. This week, we also learned Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke and Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow, that's Mitch McConnell's wife, also use private plane travel when they didn't need to. But I don't think private plane travel is what's going to get the next one kicked out. I think if you're listening to this on your Friday commute home, there's a good chance Secretary of State Rex Tillerson may already be gone. Let's be honest, we all thought he was going Wednesday when he called a surprise press conference, but I want to start earlier in the week. Tillerson had said what any Secretary of State should say, that he was still hopeful about diplomacy with North Korea. And Trump responded with this. I told Rex Tillerson, our wonderful Secretary of State, that he is wasting his time trying to negotiate with little Rocket Man. Save your energy, Rex. We'll do what has to be done. Now that is a vicious blow to the knees from the president to his own Secretary of State. Calling him out by name on Twitter like that? We'll take care of it like Tillerson isn't part of the we? It was ugly. And that alone could have been enough reason for Tillerson to step down. But then Wednesday, a nuclear bomb hit in the form of an NBC News report saying that Tillerson had wanted to resign earlier in the year and had called Trump a moron in a meeting of senior administration officials at the Pentagon. A moron. So, Tillerson called a press conference, 
and I thought he was stepping down, but nope. He denied that he'd ever even thought about resigning, and he also did this. Can you address the, the main headline of this story that you called the president a moron, and if not, where do you think these reports or I'm ideas just, are I'm not going to deal with petty stuff like that. I mean, this is, this is what I don't understand about Washington. Again, you know, I'm not from this place, but the places I come from, we don't deal with that kind of petty nonsense. Yeah, that's what we in the business call a non-denial. He was straight up asked if he called the president a moron and didn't say no. Later, his spokesperson said he didn't say it, but frankly, it was a little late for that. Plus, she used to be a Fox and Friends host, so she already lied for a living. Trump said he accepted Tillerson's remarks as a denial, called the whole story fake news, and said he had full confidence in his secretary of state. But reports are already leaking out that Trump was furious with Tillerson for not denying calling him a moron. And I mean, it's not exactly crazy to think someone would call Trump a moron. So, I personally wouldn't be surprised to see Rex decide to spend a little more time with his family very soon. And if it happens today, I'm not saying it will be because of me, but I'm not not saying that either. There were three pretty vicious attacks this week on the rights of the LGBT community from three different parts of the administration, but they're all worth covering. First, I want to go to the United Nations, where the United States voted against a resolution calling for an end to death penalty sentences against people accused of being gay in countries where that's a crime. Look, I know we love the death penalty here in America, and we tend to vote against UN resolutions that call the death penalty a violation of human rights, which it obviously is. But we can't vote for a simple UN resolution saying nations shouldn't murder people for being gay? We can't even go that far? Because it seems like the absolute minimum we could do to recognize the humanity of LGBT people. Another thing we could do is allow them to visit loved ones in long-term care facilities. But the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services rescinded a pending rule that would force those facilities to recognize same-sex partners. Now, to be clear, CMS claims the rule is no longer necessary because same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. So they say, if you're married, you're married, and it no longer matters whether or not you're a same-sex couple. But make no mistake, there are likely still places that would refuse to recognize those marriages and refuse those spouses' rights, the long-term care equivalent of those bakers who don't want to bake cakes for gay weddings. The legality of marriage is one thing. The Medicaid funding of a long-term care facility is another thing entirely. Put that at risk, and I guarantee you those places are going to follow the law. Lastly, the Justice Department, because there's not going to be a series of attacks on LGBT people without Jeff Sessions getting his sticky little hands into the mix. The Justice Department rescinded a policy declaring that transgender people were protected from workplace discrimination under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The act forbids discrimination on the basis of sex, and Sessions claims that applies to discrimination based on being a man or a woman, but not on being transgender. That means every transgender person in America woke up the following day and headed into their jobs with the knowledge that they could be fired for absolutely no reason other than being who they are. That's just one week of vicious attacks on the rights of the LGBT community from across the administration, state, health and human services, justice. Everywhere you turn, Donald Trump is making the country an uglier place. (laughs) 
Earlier this year, and honestly, I couldn't even tell you what episode it was in because these are all running together, I talked about a program created by Immigration and Customs Enforcement for people to call in and report crimes by undocumented immigrants. The idea, of course, was to promote the administration line that these people are all criminals and gang members and bad people we have to expel from our country immediately. Well, Splinter News did a story on exactly what people have been using the hotline for, and it is exactly what you would predict it to be. They've used it to report on suspected undocumented immigrants, and often to settle personal score. People have reported on neighbors, even family members. Many used it to report people who accuse them of domestic violence. They used it to get revenge on ex-wives. I'll give him credit. This is the America Donald Trump promised. One where immigrants aren't treated like people, but as criminals or even animals. Where we turn on each other. Where we're driven by fear and suspicion. In America, where we're all a little more like Donald Trump. President Trump plans to decertify the nuclear deal with Iran, according to a report in the Washington Post. He's going to declare that the deal is not in the national interest. This goes against the recommendation of his own Secretary of Defense to keep the deal. And frankly, it goes directly against the national security interests of the United States. I've said this before in this podcast, but this deal has been pretty much an unqualified success. Has it fixed Iran? No, of course not. That wasn't the goal of the deal. The deal was made to shut down Iran's nuclear weapon development program, and by all reports, it has done exactly that. Of course, Trump hates the deal because it was struck by the Obama administration, but it's exactly the kind of diplomacy that we should be seeking, significant measurable results that make the world a safer place. According to the Post, Trump's proposed actions wouldn't immediately scuttle the deal. It would start the process, kicking it to Congress and possibly leading to the reimposition of sanctions. And the moment that happens, the clock starts again on Iran's nuclear program. And Trump is willing to do that just because he hates Barack Obama. Of course, if there's one Obama achievement Trump hates more than the Iran deal, it's Obamacare. And Trump has done everything he can to overturn it, failing miserably, thank goodness. But he still has a lot of power to weaken and undermine the law, and this week we saw two examples. First, Iowa, a state with a Republican legislature and Republican governor, has been trying to get permission from the administration to fix its marketplace. The marketplaces have suffered from real problems, largely caused by the instability fostered by the Trump administration. Trump saw a newspaper article about Iowa's request and told the head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to tell Iowa no. This means fewer people in Iowa will have access to quality, affordable health care. But Trump is petty enough to do anything to undermine Obamacare. And that includes a move that I knew was coming, but it is going to be devastating to a lot of people. A key part of Obamacare is that preventative care and prescriptions come with no copay, and it is the Department of Health and Human Services that determines what falls under preventative care. Under Obama, that included birth control, which makes perfect sense because it prevents unwanted pregnancies, obviously saving a ton of money overall. Birth control is cheaper than babies. Trust me, I know this. But if you're the kind of person who likes to control women's bodies, whether that means grabbing them by the pussy or denying them health care, you want to make them pay for the pill. So, HHS is going to take birth control off the preventative care list, meaning co-pays are coming back. 
And for many women, that will make birth control unaffordable. And what does that mean? Surprise, surprise, anti-choice folks. That means more abortions. Only the administration is going after those too. Yet another 20-week abortion ban is making its way through Congress, and Trump has said he supports the bill. Now, I could tell you all the reasons these bans are both unconstitutional and a terrible idea. Or I could talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do, someone who has actually performed abortions after 20 weeks. My name is Dr. Leah Torres. I'm an OBGYN in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I specialize in reproductive health. Leah is honestly one of my heroes. She provides abortion care in one of the reddest states in the nation and has been an incredibly patient and powerful, science-based voice for women getting abortion care. Now, most of the time people talk about getting abortions after 20 weeks, they tend to focus on the times when there's an urgent medical necessity, like the mother's life being in danger or severe abnormalities in the pregnancy. But Leah pointed out those aren't the only reasons women need abortions at that point in the pregnancy. We focus a lot on the reasons that people want to need an abortion. And I've always said that an abortion is needed if someone is pregnant and they don't want to be. The only remedy for that situation is an abortion. Uh, Adoption requires carrying the pregnancy to full term and giving birth. That said, several circumstances of patients having Abortions after 20 weeks include they didn't know they were pregnant. That is not as uncommon as people might think. Uh, People have a very strong defense mechanism that we call denial, and that can lead to someone not knowing that they're pregnant until five, six months. Another thing is that a lot of women have irregular periods. So when their period doesn't show up, for five months, that's no surprise until they take a pregnancy test and they're five plus months pregnant. Um, so these are situations that are not rare by any, by any standard. And so keep in mind that an abortion after 20 weeks is still much safer than carrying a pregnancy to term and giving birth. There are risks, of course, involved, and if someone is pregnant and wants an abortion, the earlier that they can get it, the better, because there are fewer risks. Uh, It is just overall safer. However, a lot of state laws prevent people from getting abortions early and, in fact, push them to 20 weeks and beyond. So for the legislature to say we're going to ban abortion after 20 weeks, but we're also going to put these other laws in place such that you can't get an abortion any earlier than that is essentially signing someone up for putting their life at risk in pregnancy and giving birth to a child that they can't or don't want to take care of. I am baffled as to how any of that is moral or ethical. Can you talk a little bit more about some of those restrictions? I know you practice in a red state. So what are some of the restrictions that you know about that have that sort of force women to delay getting an abortion or, um, or being able to, to access the procedure? One of the largest, most impactful, and I think easiest to understand restrictions is, for example, in the state of Utah, there is a state law prohibiting any insurance, public or private, from covering abortion services. 
So that means an abortion procedure is out-of-pocket payment. People who can't access health care in general and therefore cannot access highly effective contraception are the ones who get hit the hardest by this restriction because A, they didn't have a means to prevent an unwanted pregnancy, and B, now they're having an unwanted pregnancy and have to pay out of pocket to have an abortion. They're trying to come up with the money, they're borrowing, they're you know, doing whatever they can to come up with the 400 to $800 in order to have the procedure. And by the time they get the money, the procedure is now $1,200 because they're farther along because it took them another month to come up with the money. So it is a vicious cycle for such an imposition, especially financially, on someone. And so that is how anyone could get to 20 weeks needing an abortion because they just couldn't afford one before and it became more expensive the further they went along in pregnancy. Pregnancy isn't something that just stops unless, of course, you have a miscarriage, but it's a time-sensitive issue. You don't get less pregnant as the weeks go by. And so it's urgent that people who need an abortion can access one as soon as possible, not only for their own safety, but in order to avoid situations like that. So as someone who, who deals with women who come in for abortion care, what effect do laws like these have on those women uh, from a psychological perspective? A lot of them don't know that these laws are in place. So I have to tell them, I would do your abortion today, except the state is going to make you wait three days longer in order to have the abortion because they really want you to think about it. And then I get a look of disbelief, anger, and frustration because they've been thinking about it ever since they got the positive pregnancy test weeks ago. So it's insulting, frankly. And patients' reactions are anywhere from anger to disbelief to, I guess that's just another thing that, you know, our legislature is doing. I mean, it's hard to comprehend all of the ethical and moral violations that these laws incur on patients. It's just tiring for them and for physicians. The reason that the that Republicans are pushing this bill in Congress and have pushed versions of this bill throughout the states is the claim that fetuses feel pain at 20 weeks. They say we need to stop abortions because this is the, the time when fetuses can feel pain. And they claim this there's solid science behind this. Have you reviewed the science on this claim? I have reviewed the science and there is no solid science on this. First of all, let's pretend there is. Let's pretend that at 20 weeks, a fetus can feel pain just like you or me. Why aren't we giving babies pain when they're being squeezed out of the birth canal? When their heads are being squished into a cone as they go through their mother's pelvis, why aren't we giving fetuses pain medicine for that process if they feel pain? That said, why don't we give preterm babies in the ICU pain medicine when we poke and prod them with needles and, you know, IVs and blood draws, spinal taps even, they're not getting any pain medicine, at least not what the legislature deems to be appropriate as far as pain control. Why aren't we legislating pain control for circumcisions, for preterm babies in the ICU, for babies being born vaginally or via C-section? Why aren't these babies getting pain medicine if fetuses can feel pain as early as 20 weeks. Now, the science says that they can't. 
the science says in a thorough, what's called a systematic review, meaning looking at several studies across several disciplines, the pain pathways, the parts of our brain that interpret and receive pain signals are not even present until the third trimester, at least 28 weeks. So it's just false that some fetus at 20 weeks can feel pain. I've had a senator in Utah, Senator Weiler, asked me, can I say with 100% certainty that fetuses at 20 weeks cannot feel pain? Of course, I had to answer no to that question, but here's why. Because you can't prove a negative. I also can't say with 100% certainty that unicorns don't exist. So to err on the side of caution is not really the way that science works. Science works with positive, affirmative, reproducible data. And that data has told us that the pain pathways in our neurological system do not even develop until the third, the third trimester, 28 weeks. How much more difficult do these restrictions make your practice and your ability to treat your patients? So I'm actually unable to perform abortion procedures for the vast majority of my patients that come to me due to the state laws in Utah. I can treat them for miscarriage, but I can't do the same procedure if there's a heartbeat, for example. I can treat a miscarriage in my office, but I can't do the same procedure for an abortion. Um, So it does make my full scope of practice actually impossible. And so people come to me seeking my care because they know that I'm a compassionate physician who performs abortions. And then I have to send them somewhere else because the state won't let me provide the evidence-based medicine that I have been trained across the span of 10 years to perform. Apparently, the state knows better than I do. This bill would threaten doctors performed abortions after 20 weeks with up to five years in jail. I assume that would leave someone like you with questions as to as to what to do. I mean, uh, what would you do uh, if you had a patient with a, a real medical need and you were faced with that choice? I feel that I would follow evidence-based medicine and I would perform the abortion. If I were arrested, I feel that I have a very good, solid legal backing in that it is evidence-based. The law is not evidence-based. And so when talking about what's best for the patient, that is always where I'm going to side. I, I don't want to break the law. I don't want this law to come into, you know, into play because I will choose a patient's life over the law. Finally, last week I talked about how Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump have their own private email addresses that they've used for government business, which is... So breathtakingly hypocritical after the 2016 campaign that it's almost beautiful. Like, you could not craft a more perfect example of hypocrisy if you had hypocrisy master artisans spend a hundred years working seven days a week to make the most hypocritical thing ever. And yet somehow, this week, it got worse. An analysis from someone named Aria Kovler on Medium showed that the private emails were hosted at a private mail server at the Trump Organization. Private emails to conduct government business hosted on a private server. So, when does the chanting start? 
That's it for another week with an unmitigated nepotist as our president. Thank you to Leah Torres for coming on the podcast. I insist you go follow her on Twitter immediately. She's at Leah N. Torres. Leah with an H, Torres with an S. And follow me if you don't. I'm at Jesse Bernie. Send me an email at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetrumpscorecard. And you can find links to all the stories I've talked about in the podcast today and past episodes on the website, thetrumpscorecard.org. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast and find it useful, I need your support to keep it going. Head over to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash the Trump scorecard right now and sign up. Seriously, do it. Be smart. The Trump Scorecard is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal.